Repent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This Sunday, this second Sunday of Advent, we uh, Anglicans are forced to talk about a guy whose last name is the Baptist. I mean, really. I'm always a little irritated that Roman Catholics get to call themselves Catholics. That's a great term. Why do they get it? Now the Baptists get to claim John, the cousin of Jesus? I suppose as long as they don't call him John the Full Immerser, then we'll be all right. But I rather like how the Eastern Orthodox refer to this John, Ioannis Ha Prodromos, John the Forerunner. For yes, part of John's ministry included baptism, a baptism of repentance. But for the most part, what we see here in Matthew 3 today is not his baptizing ministry, but his preaching ministry. But both his preaching and his baptizing are in service to his vocation as the forerunner, the one who prepared the way of the Lord. My friend Madison Pierce wrote the following little intro to her recent piece in Christianity Today's Advent devotional web series. She writes, If we're honest, at first glance, John the Baptist is about the worst hype man you could possibly imagine. He's dressed in a belted hair shirt and eats locusts. And as he comes into the wilderness of Judea, he begins to preach. We could certainly imagine a proclamation of the coming Messiah that might tickle the ears a little bit more. He could have reminded the people of the great promises associated with the Messiah, that the Messiah will bring justice, provide healing, offer stability. He could tell them the good news. John, however, does something quite different. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I think she's right. If we were sketching the plot for the arrival of a great king, I don't imagine our first thought would be for our opening scene to include this ragged guy preaching out in the wilderness, nor that what he be preaching is to repent. For as Pierce points out, why not lead with all that nice stuff about the coming king that he was supposed to bring? Why not lead with like grace and mercy? Why not lead with what Isaiah describes in our reading this morning? That when the Messiah comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. That all sounds quite lovely, quite peaceful. Why not lead with this? Why lead with a profound call to abandon the path you're on, turn around, and go the opposite direction? Why lead with a very unmarketable slogan to stop doing what you want and instead start doing what God wants? Well, actually, I think because of grace. Now, that might seem contrary to our expectations. What has grace to do with repentance? It doesn't seem very gracious to yell at people, telling them they're a brood of vipers, as John does in verse 7. Don't we see grace in all that lovely Isaiah stuff, but not in the stuff about the axe at the root of the tree and the winnowing fork and the fire? Well, I think we see grace in both. It's both gracious for God to bring about a situation where the wolf dwells with the lamb, and it's gracious for God to call, order, even demand that we follow his rules, his guidance for how to live. But on the latter kind of grace, God doesn't just leave us to our own devices. Rather, in fact, he empowers us to keep his law. And so repentance is something of a, a two-edged sword almost. On one edge is the call to obey God's law, but on the other edge is the grace to do so. One of the problems I think that we have sometimes is, is with the term grace. We use the term grace in different ways and in, and in different contexts. 
sometimes we use the word grace uh, when we just mean uh, the rules are a bit vague or, or they don't have to be adhered to with strict precision. When you're sauteing onions, there's quite a bit of grace if you do it over low heat. When you students go to submit your papers online, it's due at 11.59 p.m., but your professor gives you a grace period until 12.15, that just means 11.59 was not a precise deadline. But some things in life do require strict precision. I'm pretty sure we don't want your neurosurgeon feeling like there's a lot of grace when it comes to where the scalpel goes. There's very little margin of error in brain surgery. But there's another use of the term grace, more in line with how I think we see it being used often in scripture. And this is grace as something akin to power from God, divine empowerment. I think this is how our Advent Collect uses this term. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of life. Almighty God, give us grace to do something, to cast away the works of darkness. This isn't grace like a wide margin of error. This is grace as divine empowerment, the grace to do things, the God-given ability to cast away the works of darkness and to, to live according to the light. But we run into a problem when we get confused about which kind of grace applies in the situations in which we find ourselves. It's, it's fine to say, I'm running late for a meeting. I need a bit of grace. It's fine to say, I'm sorry, I forgot to pick up the milk. Have grace on me if by grace we here mean a wide margin of error. But it's a totally different context to say, I lied, I cheated, I stole, I gossiped, I lusted, I hated, I need grace. The grace needed here is not just let it slide. What's needed here is the power from God not to do these things, and instead the power to do the opposite. Grace here is the power to love God and to love others. Grace in this context is not a license to do whatever you want. It's the power to do what God wants. And if you're not doing what God wants, then here is where grace and repentance go hand in hand. For instance, think about uh, another moment in John the Forerunner's preaching ministry, preaching about repentance, which we find later on in Matthew. Matthew 14.3 says this, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod had taken his brother's wife. We might think on the margin of error definition of grace that John should have just let it slide. What's a bit of adultery between pagans? But John didn't let it slide. He called it out for what it was. He, he issued a call to repentance. Herod, you're not following God's law. You're doing what you want, not what God wants. Repent. Of course, we know how this story goes. Herod did not repent. He did not do what God wanted. He imprisoned John and then beheaded him. Probably, hopefully, when we're called out on something, we're not likely to behead the person accusing us. Probably. I think when, when we hear the call to repentance, we're more likely to follow not Herod's example, but perhaps the example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees back here in Matthew 3. Here again what John says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. It seems the situation is that these religious leaders saw all these people going out to hear John's preaching and to be baptized for repentance. And they too were coming out there as well. But they weren't actually planning to repent. 
They were just hoping to look all pious before the people. And I think this links up with one tendency that we have when we're called out, which is just to sort of fake it and go through the motions. Well, more than that, these religious leaders were also claiming, we have Abraham as our father. These Pharisees and Sadducees seem to be asking for a bit of grace, a bit of margin of error. Saying they had Abraham as their father was a way of getting out of following God's law with their whole hearts. Yeah, we can fudge a little bit on God's law. We're descendants of Abraham. Just let it slide. But isn't that just a way of trying to say that the laws don't really apply to us? It's a case of special pleading. You can imagine these religious leaders saying something like, well, yes, I, I know that usually we're supposed to go through an act of repentance only if we actually plan to repent, but I just really don't want people thinking that I'm not as devoted to God as they are, and, and really anyway, I have Abraham as my father, so technically, I don't really have to do this whole repentance thing. When we're called out on something, isn't our tendency to evade or avoid the accusations or to make some kind of excuse for why the rule doesn't apply in our current situation? John tells these religious leaders that they ought not fake their repentance just to look good, and they can't just appeal to their lineage to get out of the need for true repentance. I think this call to true inner repentance by John is actually saturated with grace, for grace is not the license to do whatever I want, it's the power to do what God wants. And sometimes, in the best of times, those two things coalesce. That is, sometimes what I want is the same as what God wants. And in fact, I think that's one of the goals of our lives, to so align our desires, our hopes, and our wills with God's so that we're free to do whatever we want, because that will be the same as what God wants. But that isn't always the case, and oftentimes what we want is different from what God wants. In times like this, grace does not come in to help us do what we want. Grace comes in to prevent us from doing what we want. When we're not doing what God wants, asking for grace is asking for the power to stop, to turn around, and to do the opposite. Asking for grace is a request to help to heed the call to repent. During Advent, we're weekly placing before our attention the Ten Commandments, the outline of the guidance that God has provided us to live as he wants. These ten words are a specification of the summation that we hear weekly at other times, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what our liturgy has us say during the Decalogue after each of these ten words. Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. That, it seems to me, is a gentle request for grace to enable us to repent. Notice we don't pray, Lord, I'm going to try my very best to follow this law. Or, Lord, I do solemnly swear to keep this law. Or, in fact, we don't even say, Lord, help me to keep this law. The petition here to God is a bit more subtle, a bit more nuanced, and I think a great deal more gentle as an aid to our repentance. Lord, incline our hearts to keep this law. Lord, I need help. Yes, by God, I need help to repent and keep your law, but even before that, I need help even to want to keep your law. Once the wanting is in place, the keeping becomes relatively easy. I think I'm not alone in finding it very difficult to do something I don't want to do. I find it much easier to do the things I do want to do. 
The other day I was supposed to take my dog for a run, but it was cold, and it was gray, and it was windy. It was like 10 degrees with the wind chill. I did not want to do that, and my wife can testify to my procrastination. But I also want my dog to be healthy and not to whine or get ornery or gnaw my wife's work chair. And I also want to be healthy myself. I don't gnaw anything when I don't get a run in, but I do get a bit ornery. So, so no, I didn't want to go out into 10 degree weather, but I had other wants, stronger wants. Wants that eventually did push me to actually want to go outside. I didn't want to take my dog out, but I ended up wanting to want to take my dog out. And so I think it goes for the grace that we ask from God in repentance. If God can but give me some grace to want what I ought, to want what God wants, it's going to be a lot easier for me to actually do what I ought. And this, then, is what I think we're praying for when we ask God to incline our hearts to keep his law. We are asking for grace, the divine empowerment, to want to repent. And once we do repent, we are further enabled to keep the law, to keep the guidelines that God has set for us. And how does this apply? Maybe you're in a situation where you're not in a state of peace and love and charity with your neighbor or your boss or your roommate or your spouse. In fact, maybe you don't want to love them. And perhaps in this state, it's even too difficult, too steep a challenge to muster up the strength to pray, God, help me to love my neighbor or boss or spouse or roommate. But I wonder if it might be possible to simply say, God, incline my heart to keep your law. God, incline my heart to love my spouse. God, I don't want to love my boss right now. Help me to want to want to love my, my boss. In this season of preparation, this means lots of different things. College and grad students are at present preparing for the last week of classes and upcoming finals. Many of us are preparing for travels over Christmas break and New Year's. Some of you are preparing for the close of the calendar year and all the fiscal activity that entails. Some of us are preparing for holiday parties and Christmas presents and all that. And we do a lot of things to prepare for these things that are up and coming. Studying, planning, closing the books, wrapping presents. But can we also remember in this season of preparation that we're preparing for the commemoration of the birth of our divine king? And layered on top of that, we are continually preparing for the second coming of this heavenly king. John the Forerunner was an unexpected hype man for this coming arrival of Jesus. And can we listen to John the Forerunner's preaching about preparation? Such that one thing we might add to our holiday preparation is some literal, actual repentance. This might take a bit of intentional time and perhaps some guidance. For guidance, right there in your hands or on your pew is a copy of the Ten Laws of God. You might take that home, take a bit of time and ask God to help you see how you are or are not following God's guidance articulated there. And when you feel that tug to repentance, feel called out by the reality of God's law and your inability to follow it, or maybe when you just simply don't want to follow it, perhaps you might let that other side of repentance come to you and, and simply pray, Lord, have mercy upon me and incline my heart to keep your law. Amen.